I was living in a home with uh, a father who was addicted to alcohol, to drugs, and he he abused me. I mean, he was a tyrant. Every day was terrifying. When I got the phone call that my father had passed away, the most unexpected thing happened. I had such love for him as a son of God. I want people to know that it is possible to forgive people who have meant you harm. This healing, it's available for everybody. That's Mia Skipworth, a wife and mother currently living in Melbourne with her husband and four children. If you were to meet Mia now, you might be tempted to assume that with her warm heart and selfless, loving demeanor, she's been a member of the church her whole life. However, Mia did not grow up in a safe, nurturing home, nor did she have a knowledge of a father in heaven who loved her. Despite suffering through a childhood of abuse and feeling utterly alone, Mia somehow defied the odds and has found a life of peace through the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this episode, Mia joins me to trace her miraculous journey over the last 30 years, which has involved escaping her family environment, navigating foster care, tackling trauma, meeting the missionaries, adjusting to life in the gospel as a single mother, and learning how the atonement of Jesus Christ could heal all her broken bits. Just a quick content warning, while we don't go into details, this episode does reference various forms of childhood abuse. I'm Maddie Sterling, and this is Choosing Faith, a podcast where we interview members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and explore what it's really like to live and continuously choose a life of faith across Australia and New Zealand. Mia is tuning into the podcast from Melbourne today. Mia, welcome to Choosing Faith. How has your Sunday been so far? Thanks for having me, Maddie. It's been a lovely day. It's a beautiful Melbourne day. There's no cloud in the sky. We had a lovely church service today, sacrament meeting and testimony meeting. It was um, uplifting and, yeah, it was that kind of Sunday. It was lovely. How good is a good testimony meeting? You know, some of them you can sleep through, but others just really, those are the kind of days where I feel like I come away from church and remember, oh, this is why I attend church. It's true. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. You're joining me very graciously to discuss your faith journey. And given that you joined the church in your 20s, it looks a little different, I suppose, to someone who grew up attending church as a child. Maybe to start with, we can just do a bit of an overview. So can you tell me and those listening a little bit about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Maddie. There's some weird things about me. I'm a little bit geeky. I'm a lot clumsy. I'm always hitting myself. There's, I've always got a blue somewhere. <laughs> Me too. <So, laughs> um, I love all things linguistics, everything about word formation, language. Um, I love. That's quirky. I like that. <laughs> I love looking after my family. I'm in the kitchen a lot. Yep. I love it when we all sit down to a meal and the, my family eating good nutritious food that I cooked. There's lots and lots and lots of things that I love and I'm passionate about, but that's, that's a little bit about me. Thanks so much. I feel like I've got a really good snapshot into, into who you are and I feel like if I came and visited you in Melbourne, I could come in and expect a home-cooked meal <laughs> and, and a nice big hug. <laughs> You'd be you'd be fed from <laughs> the minute you got here until the time. <laughs> hey, as a pregnant lady, I won't say no. <laughs> That's great. Well, you've had quite a, an interesting life and haven't always been a member of the church. I was thinking probably the best way to do this is start chronologically. So maybe we can start with you just telling me about your family, your upbringing. What what was it like for you as a child? I was. Born in Auckland, New Zealand, and uh, my my dad was actually much older than my mum, so he was in his forties, and mum was in her early twenties. And um, my father had had previous relationships, so he had a daughter previously. So I had an older sister that I actually never met until um, I was in my thirties, and my mother also had. A child previous to this relationship 
so I had a sister who was brought up by my mum's parents. So I had these two sisters and two brothers who were brought up together and actually another brother who was fostered out. So you kind of get a picture of this family that mm. was quite, uh, they were, they was, it was disjointed. Mum was in and out of my life. She wasn't there permanently. She would come and go for years at a time. I didn't, I didn't know her as mum. I didn't recognise her until I was older as my mum. And so I was being cared for by the nanny or by I don't know who, actually. Well, my dad had to work and I, I missed out. I feel like I missed out on so much. So as a child, yeah, we weren't this lovely family and it, was, it wasn't the best start. What kind of um, religious influence, if any, did you have when you were a kid? Like, did your parents believe in God, or I remember asking my dad, who he's he was British. I think I was about five, and I said, "Am I religious?" And he said, <laughs> "Yes." Am you I? Are. And I said, well, "Oh, do I have a church?" And he said, "Yes, you have the Church of England." And that <laughs> was about all I ever knew. And so I thought, oh, that's okay. I'm religious and I have a church. Um, I had no idea what that meant. But apart from that, there wasn't really anything that was pushed in your upbringing about prayer or, or God. Yeah, you said you don't, you didn't really live with your siblings. Were they coming and going from different homes or? Yeah, I have to go back because I actually had my father had two daughters. So one who I'd never met, one who I grew up with, and then my brothers. But my sister that I grew up with, she she ran away from home. She was about 16. I was about nine. And she, yeah, she ran away. I remember the morning that she left. I had somebody had bought me a perfumed pen and it was my prized possession. I never used it because I didn't want the ink to run out. And she picked it up in the morning and she was writing with it and I said something to her like, you're not allowed to use my pen, something like that. And that was um, the last time that we ever lived together because she left that day. She was writing a note saying that she was leaving, so I remember that day. And as a child, did you understand at that point in time, why why she was leaving or maybe what made your family not so functional? Um, imagine it must have been hard to piece together what was normal uh, and what wasn't. I didn't. I had no idea of, well, I was only nine. So, you know, at that age, um, you don't really think about or put yourself in somebody else's shoes. No. Um, you don't actually have the capacity to really understand that or to do that. So. I couldn't piece together that the trauma that I was facing was also hers. As you got a little bit older, when was it that you first started to realise that you weren't really living in a safe environment? Yeah, I I got to those early teen years and realised there was something really bad about my, my situation. At this point, my mother had left. So I was, it was also about the time my sister left. Mm-hmm. I realized, well, this is bad. Every day I'm terrified of what's going to happen next. I was living in a home with uh, a father who was uh, addicted to alcohol, to drugs, and he, he abused me. He abused me sexually, physically, emotionally. As I was saying before, you don't, yeah, a young child isn't able to quantify that until you get to an age where you can start seeing and understanding that your situation is very different from, for example, I had a beautiful best friend. My life was so very different to hers. And it wasn't until those, those young teenage years that I started realizing just what I was living in, what I was a part of. I mean, he was a tyrant. Uh, we would often not eat until midnight because he was drunk or screaming and yelling. We'd have to stand at attention and listen to his ranting and raving till midnight before we were fed. It was terrifying. 
It was, it really was. Every day was terrifying. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine the, the fear that you must have had and but also confusion because here's this person that's your caregiver and your father and there would have been, I'm sure, some love toward him but then trying to process that what was happening to you wasn't wasn't healthy or safe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's and that's that's a good reflection because the reality is is that children love their parents. Yeah. And I can tell you some great things about my dad too. He was an amazing gardener. He was an intellect. He was a musician. He was a gourmet chef. He was also very sick. And so, But children don't know that. Children are so no. forgiving. But once I, obviously once I grew up a little bit and realised this is terrible, this is not good, that's when you, you kind of start to ask questions. As then you grew into kind of like that mid-teens stage, what happened then? You mentioned that you were taken out of your home and placed into foster care. Was there any kind of catalyst for that or did you initiate it yourself? I, I initiated that myself to the police. So I remember one night thinking that I needed to remove not just myself, but I had two younger brothers and I was concerned for their safety and I knew that I couldn't I couldn't exist like that anymore. So I jumped out my window one night. It was winter. I was cold. I didn't have any shoes on. I jumped on my bike and I rode about 35 minutes in the dark <gasps> to the police station. Wow. Uh, I walked in there, school uniform, no shoes, soaking wet, middle of winter. And I remember walking up to the counter and there was a, um, a police officer on duty and she looked at me and she asked me if I was okay and I said, no, I'm not okay. Uh, I need help. And she asked me, what do you need help with? I said, somebody needs to help my dad. Of course, I wanted help too. But my the first thing I said, the first thing I said in my statement was, "My dad needs help." Yeah, it was a, it was a little bit of a harrowing situation. I was there on my own. I was fifteen, but I knew that I couldn't live like that anymore, and I and that's why I did what I did. And it, it wasn't an easy thing to do uh, because what came after the questioning, and they they did they questioned me about exactly why I felt my dad needed help, and when I disclosed to them that I was being abused. What happened after that was, was traumatic as well. I was taken back to my home where I watched my father get arrested and the house frame shackled, and then my brothers and I were taken away. I am just sitting here in awe of your bravery because I'm sure as an, a 15-year-old you would have been astute enough to realize that going to the police would have had some you know, dramatic consequences, right? Did you feel like... That bravery came from some kind of divine presence or was it within you already? I've thought about that. Could I identify it at the time? No. But there was divine help and I, I can tell you that there has been my whole life when I look back. I imagine a, my heavenly mother and my heavenly father thinking about and creating my spirit. What is she going to need to get through what... We know she has to go through. I can imagine my heavenly mother saying to my heavenly father, make sure she has what she needs because she's going to have to do it alone for a while. She gave me what I needed and that was the capacity to think about another person's pain and suffering even when that person has done to me what could be the worst, most awful thing. Yeah, that is a a tremendous gift, one that I can't imagine being able to to exercise, particularly in that moment when you are very much a victim. But thank you for sharing. I was just curious because knowing what we we learn at church about how much our Heavenly Father loves us, it doesn't make sense to me that in those moments you would be left alone. And although, yeah, you said you didn't recognize any kind of guiding hand particularly, it seems like in hindsight you can look back and see... I was created in a way I had the, the kind of the gifts and 
in a sense, already there within me to be able to get through what I needed to. So foster care, I'm sure that brought a whole new range of challenges. Were you with your brothers? No, it was terrible. So I, I mistakenly believed at 15 that I'd be able to keep the house, look after my brothers. I mean, I was already doing it anyway, (laughs) but they were taken, uh, my mum's family agreed that I could uh, stay in the city that I was in and move into foster care, which, yeah, which <laughs> was probably not the best decision, to be honest, but I thought it was at the time. It was very challenging. I didn't have any other friends who were in foster care. I didn't have any other friends who were going through what I was going through because there was no name suppression in the reporting of my case. My disclosure led to criminal action and my father was imprisoned. So the whole world knew. Um, I would go to school and people had read it in the newspaper. There was that stigma as well. It separated me again. I just felt alone. It was difficult. Were you placed in families with other foster children as well that you then had to get along with? Yes. Yeah, the the first one was home of a previous teacher, a primary school teacher and his wife and their two young children. And I tell you, they, the children were beautiful. They were little. That was good for me. That was actually therapeutic. It was a safe environment initially. It wasn't always. It ended up not being a safe place for me with other people coming into in and out of that family who were also predators. It happens. You know, you hear about it and you think, how does that happen in foster care where a child who's taken from their home is sexually abused is put into another one and experiences the same thing. Do you mean other foster children that were older, like teenagers? No. Family friends that came into their family, adults. You're very, very vulnerable when you have grown up and I, my first recollection of the abuse started, I was three years old. Oh, wow. So I'm, I've grown up. I've grown up in an environment where I've witnessed domestic violence, where I've, where I've seen alcoholism and, and drug abuse, where I've witnessed just evil. What does that, what does that then, or well, who am I when I'm 15? Mm. Am I, am I my father? Am mm. I my mother? Because she's gone. My father, he's in prison. Are you your own person or are you just merely a product of your environment? Right. So is it my fault that this other predator comes into my life? It must be me. I'm, I'm, I'm bad, inherently bad. That's the kind of thing that happens to mm. children who face the kind of life I did. That's what you believe. And, and I know um, – you know, you hear about cycles of abuse, uh, history repeating itself. Obviously, no one goes in intentionally thinking, I'm going to, you know, create this or manifest it for my future. But I can see just listening to your upbringing, how difficult it must have been to kind of even get away from that because how do you even know what is right from wrong at that point? That's right. How do you get away from it? That's such a good question. So, how how did you? Did you stay in foster care until you were 18? I did, and I I moved to another family who were amazing. I still call them mum and dad. (laughs) To this day, I still have contact with them. But as soon as I turned 18, I uh, left their care and moved into my own apartment, got a full-time job, and then Mm -hmm. actually got my younger brother, our youngest brother, who was living away, I actually got got him back and he was living with me. So I was caring for him while he was in high school and doing a whole bunch of stuff that 18-year-olds don't don't really do. But, again, it was that nurturing, I've got to try and bring some of my family back together again. And when was it that you met the missionaries and engaged with the church? Mm. Because that was a few years later, wasn't it? Yeah, I, I first saw them when I was an exchange student in Japan. I was standing at Tokyo Station, outside Tokyo Station, waiting for my friends, and we were going to Disneyland. It was going to be a really fun day. I saw two American elders teaching. I couldn't understand what they were saying. My Japanese was fairly decent, but... They were talking in language I didn't understand. Of course, that church language, I'd never heard it before. I remember being drawn to them and thinking, what are they doing? 
and they they stood out. They were blonde, they were blue-eyed, they were standing in the middle of this, this outside the station trying to talk to people and I was found myself inching closer and closer and closer to them. I got kind of within... Um, a few metres of them and they turned around and a big smile on their faces when I said, what are you doing? I genuinely wanted to know, what are you doing and why do you look the way you do? What is, what it, what is the light? Why do you look happy? It was at that point that my, <laughs> my Japanese friends arrived, pulled me away and said, don't ever talk to them, they're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And I'm like, I don't, they don't look crazy. Anyway, they will never know, those two young missionaries, those two elders, that they, they planted a seed before I even heard anything. I felt a connection to something that they had. And it wasn't until I was early 20s that I met some YSA. And I used to go to the nightclubs. Um, in my city Friday night Saturday night go night clubbing I'd seen what alcohol did to people so I wasn't a drinker it's quite funny looking back people every single time I went somebody would say to me are you a member <laughs> and I'd look at them and say a member of what and they'd say oh don't worry about it don't worry and I honestly every time would think there's some cult there's some secret thing or membership that people belong to and they want to know if I'm belonging to it I don't know what they're talking about <laughs> there's a second um, club behind that building and everyone's actually going there <laughs> for after party <laughs> right, right so these were members of the church wondering oh she's not drinking she must be a member of the church well I, I had no idea what they're talking about um but it was through my association and meeting some YSA that I came to formal discussions with the missionaries it was a process and it took quite a while but I didn't understand so much and my life was a mess I was suicidal I had left my home prosecuted my father my mother had left me my siblings were taken I'd been in foster care I'd been raped Uh, I, I was I was not really I was a shell and people might have thought I looked okay and I was just hanging on by a thread. And so uh, I hear about these lovely these lovely ideals and these wonderful, happy families and these beautiful, you can be with your family forever. I'm thinking, why? Why would you, don't you want know that? My family. <laughs> ah, let yeah. me qualify that. My siblings I love. But my father, well, why would I be, want to be with him? You don't know. You don't know my life. So it did take me some time to um, to to internalize and decide that that was something that I wanted. I remember hearing that a lot on my mission, actually, when I would ask people, you know, what would it mean to you to live with your family in the next life? And they'd be like, I can't think of anything worse. And then I'd be very stumped and trying to think of a quick comeback. I imagine the missionaries were still teaching you some things that, that you did align with, though. Was there any particular moment that helped you build your faith in God and make that decision to be baptised? There was this one night I'd found myself in relationships that were really unhealthy. You attract to you what you think you are. Yeah. I was in this type of relationship where it was I was physically abused, I was imprisoned, I would be locked in the house, and one night... I arrived home. My boyfriend came home. He pulled me out of bed. It was winter. He threw me outside. He threw me up against the fence and he was strangling me. And I thought at that point, I don't really want to carry on anymore anyway. And his friend came and he distracted him and he said, somebody's on the phone for you. He went inside and as he walked inside, he said to me, if you leave, I will find you and I will kill you. So I had no shoes on, it was the middle of winter, it was freezing. And I saw his friend just look at me and give me a little eyebrows up. It was enough for me to know he was telling me, there's no one on the phone, you just need to run now. You need to run real fast. And I did. And I ran and I ran and I ran. I I hid under prickle bushes. I, I skidded through fences, through paddocks. I ended up running onto a main road 
And as I ran down the road, a dog bit my leg. Oh, my gosh. There's blood, there's blood running out of my calf. I kept running. I came to the main road. It's midnight. It's late. There's no cars on the road. But one car comes. The car stops. The, a man wound down the window and he said, get in the car. And I thought, oh, this is how I'm going to die. <laughs> that does sound a little bit scary. People will find me tomorrow in the river. But what have I got? I don't care. So I got in the back of the car and he drove out of town. And then he pulled into a factory area where people worked 24 hours a day. And I thought, oh, maybe I'm not going to die tonight. <sighs> got out of the car and he came back with a hot cup of Milo and uh, water and bandages. He bandaged up my leg, gave me a blanket, and he said, sleep here. I'm a night worker. I will come back in the morning. He did that. He dropped me off. I ended up going home. Years later, I'm in a chapel, and I'm a member of the church, and I walk into a sacrament meeting, and who do you think I see? Wow. The same man. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I never, I never said anything to him, and he never said anything to me. But he looked at me, and I looked at him. And he just nodded. That's one story of many that have happened throughout my life, and that's why I say I didn't recognize at the time that that there was divine intervention. I didn't know that my heavenly mother and my heavenly father were putting people in my life that would would help me to be where I am today. And oh, that boyfriend. He ended up joining the church. I, I converted him. Oh, wow. Also, also, that young man who was his friend, we now call him Bishop. Oh, <laughs> oh my goodness. All four people in that story are now sitting in church pews each week. Oh, wow. That is a miracle. It's really reminding me of the Good Samaritan. The fact that he like took you to a safe place, picked you up, bandaged you, healed you, and said, "I'll be back in the morning," as if you know it was the the Good Samaritan paying the innkeeper. Wow! Like I've never heard such a similar tale before. It is very much like that. It's beautiful to hear that you had those little moments to kind of guide you in the right direction away from the environment that you'd grown up in. However, you have told me that in these early years after you got baptized, life was still incredibly rocky. You were still trying to escape the trauma of your childhood, and we won't go into detail about it, but you found yourself as a young single mother with a little boy to care for. You've, you've now been a member for 30 years. You're married with a family. How did you get through those dark years at the beginning to make it to this point? In 1995, President Gordon B. Hinckley visited New Zealand, and it was such a special occasion. I was in a lot of turmoil and, and trauma at that time, and even though I had my, my little boy, I was suicidal, and I had decided that I couldn't go on anymore, and I'd sent my son away with family. I told Emily Father what I was going to do. It wasn't good. I don't think I would have survived. But I had made a promise to sing in this choir. And so as, as numb and as devastated I was about my situation, I was committed to sing for the prophet. I got myself up that morning and I felt a prompting to open my scriptures. And I said to Heavenly Father, why would I do that now? But the prompting came and so I did. And it was very specific to a specific scripture. It was First Nephi chapter 1 verse 1. And oh, I felt like he, I felt like I'd been slapped in the face. I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents. I'm like, what are you doing to me, Heavenly Father? That's not my situation. Why do I have to read about Nephi's lovely life? Then I got in my car and drove to this beautiful conference. I asked Heavenly Father that day, I said to him, the only way that I'm going to live today is if the prophet speaks to me. And then I'll know that you love me and that I'm worth it. And when I was seated in the choir at the very top pew of a 220-member choir, I knew there was no possible way he even knew I was there. I was so far away from him, there was no way he was going to speak to me. And and I, I felt the lowest I ever felt. But I sang my heart out and the songs were beautiful. And at the end of our songs, the President Hinckley stood up to speak. 
And he started by saying, I had something prepared today, but I felt prompted to change that message this morning. He said, so we're going to go to, and I looked up and I looked at him. I knew what he was going to say. First Nephi, chapter one, verse one. It was like everybody, the thousands and thousands of people in that auditorium, there was no one there. There was just me and God's prophet. Now, I'm not saying that God prompted President Hinckley to change his message for me. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that Heavenly Father loved me enough to let me have a little glimpse of one part of his message that he would give that day so that I knew he loved me. That changed my life. That saved my life. Everything I am today is because of that one moment. I can't, I don't have the words to describe what that meant to a broken, broken, tainted, what I thought about myself was the lowest of the low. I, I was nothing, but God told me I was something. And now look at where you are. It's amazing. Since that moment, how have you been able to put the trauma behind you and move forward with hope? Mm. Well, I knew that's see, that was my new base. Yeah, I, I it took me years to have therapy and, and work and personal development to be able to overcome the effects of trauma. But that was my new base. I love you. You know, I love you. I heard your prayer. I answered your prayer. I'm always going to do that. When I fell, and I fell a lot, that was where I fell to. That communication with Heavenly Father has uh, opened up my understanding of so many things. Uh, the Book of Mormon, I'm, I'm so fond of that book. It's helped me to get to know um, my Saviour in a way that I, I would never have had I not had that book. And we know, we know from Joseph Smith and why that book is so amazing. There is no other book that will help us draw closer to our Saviour than that book. And what do I want it? Why do I want to know about him? Why do I want to follow him? Because there is no one else that could heal me. There's nobody else that could take all the little minute broken pieces of my heart and my soul and find a way to piece them back, kintsugi, with gold. They're still there. The scars are there. But they they are now part of the, the tapestry and part of the story. So that's always been where I've gone back to, that one moment in time where I knew, okay, I, I have this divine being, this father on my side. If I've got him on my side, I'm going to be okay. That's so lovely. I like how you talk about broken bits and healing it together. I think it's a good way to put what sometimes we talk about is like this abstract concept, the atonement of Jesus Christ, into a practical demonstration. Like you have, throughout this conversation, shown how broken you'd really gotten to because of your upbringing. And yet here you are 30 years later a faith-filled member of the church because of the one or two key moments <laughs> that gave you hope and helped you realize that you are loved. Given that you now had that new baseline, that foundation, how did this propel you forward to meeting your husband? So when I decided I had a testimony of the plan of salvation and I was beginning to understand that, that I had a purpose. That's when I decided I have got this little baby boy and I want to teach him that too. I don't want him to struggle with understanding where he is from, why he's here and where, where he's going. I decided to go to church. I was going to take my baby. No matter what anyone thought of me as a single mum with a little boy, I've got to go. So I actually moved cities and I went. This first day I went I had a senior um, missionary couple kind of take me under their wing and they greeted me when I got there and they were lovely. I was sitting with them and kind of halfway back, 
um, on a pew sitting sitting between them and I had my baby and the spirit told me, there's your husband. And I was still a very broken, broken person. I uh, did not want that at all. I just wanted to focus on my baby and looking after him and the spirit all through the sacrament meeting kept telling me, there's your husband. And I couldn't, chapel was full. There's 300 people in there. So, and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is crazy. I'm crazy. Um, but by that point, I understood the spirit. I understood that this was not my thoughts. Why would it be? Because that's not what I wanted at all. By the end of the meeting, everybody got up to go to class and I was kind of organizing my thoughts, trying to ignore this parallel thought in my mind. Ahead of me, there was a, a YSA and she tapped somebody on the shoulder and he turned, stood up and turned around to talk to her and the spirit told me, there's your husband. Oh, I had never met this man in my life or seen him before. You don't, that's not how you meet your husband. It's so weird, isn't it? <laughs> it's pretty dramatic. <laughs> it's a bit dramatic. You're kind of in line with the other dramatic stuff in my life. Um, I'm assuming you didn't go up to him and tell him that no. uh, from the get-go. <laughs> no, no, I didn't want to be, go anywhere near him, actually. I wanted to leave, but I was not there. I was there for my son, and I thought, well, either, you're either all in or you're all out. So I actually went to class. It was a whole big bunch of YSA, and I was feeling really scared. Not long after I sat down, my baby started crying, and... He walked right up to me with his friend and I thought, oh, no, that's, no, this can't be happening. Put his hand, hands out to my baby who went to him, which was a miracle because he didn't go to anybody, and he walked outside with him. So that was terrifying. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and I had to go get my baby back and actually have a conversation with this person that the spirit told me, there's your husband. And he, of course, he had no idea who I was or that that had happened. But um, because that happened, all of the, there was still some hard stuff for me to go through to trust him and to accept that in my life. But had that not happened, I, I don't think I would have. God had to help me to trust people. And he, my husband, Aaron, is a big part of the reason why I'm able to be here today in the gospel. He's got this amazing attitude to life and and, our, and he's helped me. And when I get a little bit sassy now and I don't agree with him, I'll, t I'll say to him, you did this. You, you helped me be exactly who I want to be and say exactly what I need to say when I need to say it with no fear. You, you did that. <laughs> he, he giggles. He has a laugh and he says, yes, that's that's fine, perfectly fine. I don't. <laughs> he wants me to be um, authentic and be able to be myself without fear of, of anything. Mia, you've been, you've been wronged and you've suffered so much emotional and physical pain that I can't even fathom. And yet here you are in a, at a place of peace that there's no malice in your heart anymore. I just wondered, maybe um, you could talk us through what your relationship with your mother and father eventually turned into um, with that perspective that you, you gained. And this is the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of Christ's teachings. As I studied the gospel and as I understood the atonement, as the years went on and I stayed faithful and, and as, you know, through my marriage and, my, and the safety in my marriage, my heart started to heal. So I, my mum, she, I didn't spend a lot of time with her, growing up with her. And initially, my pain was, why? Why did you do that to me? Why did you leave me? Turned into, oh, why did she leave? Right, not an accusation, but really wanting to know. Looking at it from her perspective a little bit more? or That opens up the desire to, to know her story and it took us a long time in fact we never really had much of a discussion about what had happened she couldn't face that she couldn't talk about that but then she was also a victim of this man he would 
beat her. That was her lens that she felt that she wasn't in a place, a safe place to be able to take me away with her without repercussions. So when I see that and I hear that, how can I continue to feel pain just for myself? My, my empathy and my pain was for her as a mother that she felt she couldn't safely take her children with her. Uh, it, it healed something in me that, that, that was an open wound for a long time. And because that healing took place, we were able to have, yeah, about 10 amazing years where it was never a relationship where I confided in her or I called her for emotional support, but what it was was amazing. Travel back to New Zealand a couple of times a year to spend time with her and and we would travel together and um, throughout Australia to visit my brother and, and she would come and see me. And it was just um, all things considered, you know, it, it was an amazing opportunity and met that many people don't have to kind of heal those wounds. And just before she passed, I was I was able to bear my testimony to her again and remind her of the things that we'd spoken about before. She wasn't a member of the church, but she understood gospel principles. She knew they were good and she hoped and prayed that what I said to her was true and that she she really held on to that in the last um, few weeks of her life. And I reminded her that her final destination wasn't going to be the grave and I'd see her again. I'm so grateful that I had that time with her um, and that we were able to find peace in our relationship. With my dad, it was a little bit different. I actually um, prosecuted my father twice. He went to prison twice because of my disclosures. That made him a very angry, angry man. I wasn't able to, to speak to him for about 15 years. Aaron used to ask me, what are you going to do when your dad dies? And I'd say the same thing every time, have a party, celebrate. And he'd just <laughs> nod his head. Yep. So, yep, I'm going to have a party that the most evil man that ever walked the earth is gone. I just carried on with my life, living the gospel, trying my best. When I got the phone call that my father had passed away, the most unexpected thing happened. The minute that I heard that he passed, I had such love for him as a son of God. My empathy for him as he returned to God's presence was something I just couldn't ever have thought that I would have felt. I cried for the, the man that should have been. And what trauma did he face that led him to this terrible place of mortality? I had so much compassion for his experience. And in, in that moment, I thought about what if I saw him in the celestial kingdom? In my mind, I ran to him like any daughter who would run to a loving father. And I thought, I can't, cannot wait to take his name to the temple and to have my children baptized and confirmed for their grandfather. And a year later, that's exactly what we did. And it was a beautiful experience. I understand the doctrine around the spirit world. But Heavenly Father revealed, revealed to me that day that while my father was still in, spirit, in this prison, that he had had progression. I felt my father have some relief from what was a mortal experience that was tortured. Yeah, it was amazing. It was a beautiful experience. And then we did his endowment and then we sealed him to his parents. The whole thing was incredibly special. I am just astounded, though, listening to this story, trying to imagine going from... <laughs> I'm going to have a party when he dies to an overnight soul to Paul experience where you feel this love and compassion. Like those feelings are not human. <laughs> well, not, <laughs> not right. um, natural yeah. man feelings. Like that is a miracle. It is. Oh, just the example of forgiveness that you are. Like you are the atonement in full operation. <laughs> 
And I just think it's so wonderful to see that it actually really does work. Uh, It's just phenomenal. How would you define the atonement? It's a a priceless and a, a powerful gift. It's the most selfless gift anyone could give anyone. The Savior said to me, and this is how I think about it, you're going to go through some stuff and it's going to be bad and you're going to wonder how you could possibly survive. But I'll tell you what, I'll go there first. I'll experience it first. All your anguish, all your hurt, your childhood trauma, I'm just going to go ahead. You just wait here. I'll just go figure that out first so that when you get there, I'll be there with you. It's not something that's easy to, it's not a concept that you can fathom in in a human mind, I Mm. think, because I'm one and then we times it by seven billion. I know. That's what is so incomprehensible about it. He can do that for everyone. That's right. He can and that he willingly did that. I didn't have a choice. He had a choice. He made the choice to do that for me and for you and for all of us. You know, at the age I am now, I'm still healing. I'm still healing from the trauma. And there was a couple of things that happened this week where normally I would fall apart. And this is a a consequence of living with childhood trauma. Your emotional brain and your logical brain don't develop the way that a, a child who doesn't face trauma does. Your logical brain basically doesn't develop. Your emotional brain overdevelops. So things can happen, you know, and things have happened in my life as an adult where it might be just a little thing and I I completely lose it because my emotional brain has taken over. That's what trauma does to a brain. And then I've realized in the last couple of weeks when we've faced a couple of things in our family, I've laughed about it or something's happened. I've said, well, you know, we just need to deal with that. And my husband, we both acknowledged and realized that part of my brain is healed. And now, according to science, that can't happen. And then we go back to all things are possible with Christ. Absolutely. And I think a huge part of that healing comes from forgiving others, from letting go of our hurts and looking forward with faith. Um, actually, that leads into a, something that I was reading this morning. Uh, I might read it out and then get your thoughts on it. It was from a, an Ensign edition. It says, Let us compare forgiveness with the bite of a snake. When someone offends you or hurts you, it's like being bitten by a snake, which can often cause us serious injuries, making the healing process last a long time, causing a lot of pain. With any wound, it does close and heal over time, but sometimes poisonous snakes can leave us with the poison inside. The same applies to resentment, hatred, the desire for revenge and seeking justice. It takes over our hearts and we cannot heal the wound. The atonement is the antidote that can heal and close this wound, even the most difficult ones for which there seems to be no remedy. How does this resonate with you? Do you feel like this is true of your experience? Definitely. It reminded me of a talk President Uchtdorf gave about a young woman who had faced something similar to me. She was in the dark and um, President Uchtdorf talked about what that darkness feels like and looks like and that's like the poison. We have to acknowledge that the poison or the darkness, it's there and that's to me why choosing the gospel of Jesus Christ, you still might be in the dark for a while, that poison still might be there for a while, but eventually you're going to see you're going to see some light, and it might be only just the smallest pinprick. But if you keep moving towards the light or into the light of the gospel, you you become more than you could ever have become on your own. I want people to know that they can get through hard things and and feel in their lives that they can do that too. And that those things are possible. It is possible to forgive people who've meant you harm. Anyone can have this healing and God loves all of us the same. So that, that it's it's available for everybody. Well, Mia, I feel like we should end with a little snapshot into what your life looks like now. Uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ has given me everything that's precious to me. Uh, my relationship with my Heavenly Father, my Heavenly Mother, the Holy Ghost, 
my Saviour Jesus Christ. And that has filtered down to my beautiful husband. He is the kindest, most loving, the sweetest, goofiest, <laughs> buff head. <laughs> He's my best friend. And then I have these four amazing kids that I've been able to, uh, as part of that healing process, I've been able to be a mother and I, uh, that is priceless to me, to have children, my, my children sealed to me. I have uh, an amazing ward family. I have the, the support of wonderful friends. I have a tribe that I've found that are beautiful people. We, we have so much fun and like everybody else, I have my ups and downs. But life is good. Uh, life, there's, there's many, many wonderful moments. And that's one thing my mum said to me. She said, she said, honey, life is about moments. So you got to enjoy the moments. They're not all going to be grand and wonderful and amazing. And there's lots of mundane stuff about life. So enjoy the moments. And I do. That is a perfect summary. Thank you so much. Thank you for for being so honest and open with everything that you've been through, um, but showing us that no matter what, there is still a God in heaven who who will stand by us. The title of this podcast is Choosing Faith. And Mia, you've not had an easy life, but you've chosen throughout the years, despite falling at times, to come back to the things that you're taught in this church. I wanted to ask, what does choosing faith mean to you? Choosing faith to me means trusting God more than yourself. When I choose faith, I choose Heavenly Father's way and not my own. That's a sanctuary to me, that I don't have to rely on my, my own understanding of, of a situation or my, my very narrow view of, of the world or life. I've got somebody I can, who, who knows everything. It knows everything about me and, and my needs and my my frailties and my weaknesses. And choosing faith means choosing to allow Heavenly Father to to go ahead and be my guide. I don't need to do it all on my own. Thank you again, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of Choosing Faith. This episode was a heavy one at times, but I hope you've come away with a renewed understanding of just how very real the healing power of Jesus Christ can be in our lives. Mia was so open and honest in sharing her story, and I hope that it's helped at least one of you today. As always, if you know of someone whose faith journey might inspire us on this show, please get in touch with me on the Choosing Faith Facebook or Instagram pages. And if you enjoyed this episode, I'd love if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts or share it with a friend. Have a great week, everyone. See you next time.